Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Daniel Rodriguez, whose new book is entitled The Right to Live in Health, Medical Politics in Post-Independent Savannah. As Rodriguez demonstrates, the politics of health and healthcare were a principal aspect of statecraft long before the Cuban Revolution. This is a beautifully written book full of intriguing stories that makes important arguments about medical care, gender, the state, and the role of empire in Cuba. Here's our conversation. Hi, Dan. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Um, Thank you for having me. So what was the impetus for this book? It's about um, the relationship between healthcare and the state, which is something in Cuba, um, which is something we've all been thinking about a lot, I guess, recently in relation to the United States or wherever we are. Um, but I imagine that that wasn't the case when you first had the idea for, for the book. So um, maybe you can just tell us the origin story. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, when I started researching this book, I certainly had no idea that it would be coming out in the midst of the worst global pandemic in a hundred years. Um, and certainly didn't think, you know, that it would have something to say about our current moment. Um, yeah, I, be- I began it in 2007, 2008, first starting to do research. Um, initially, I was thinking I would do a project on the, the transition from colony to republic in Cuba from the perspective of gender and sexuality. And it was actually in these uh, the series of, of reports that were produced right around the turn of the century during the U.S. occupation and right afterwards um, that uh, there were these these reports on prostitution that were um, put together by these um, medical practitioners, public health officials, um, because prostitution at the time was regulated and um, you know under the purview of, of public health. And I was just struck by the kinds of language that you would cons- that I consistently see in these reports um, and in other reports from the period um, that that spoke to public health and medicine as being um, this this quote blessed formula for progress for the Cuban nation. The idea that that there was something about this transition from colony to republic in Cuba um, where where medicine was at the heart of it, according to these these public health officials, and of course other. Um, things that I would see around the time period, like, you know, a, a quote by Carlos Finlay, who was the famous um, epidemiologist who discovered the mosquito theory of disease, who in 1905, I uh, believe, wrote that the, he said the, the young Republic of Cuba had the luck of being born at the dawn of an age of enlightenment in the midst of a sparkling atmosphere of scientific discovery so that its first breaths have been of progress and noble aspirations. And I, you know, it was just struck by the consistency of that kind of language and this idea that there was something to the, the, the timing of Cuban independence um, that, that had medicine um, and, the, and the potential of medicine to transform Cuban society that seemed to be at, at the core of it, um, according to this whole generation of, of Cuban medical practitioners. And that, that got me started on a completely different path because I had not considered doing a project on history of medicine, but then I was sort of sucked into it at that point um, and just fell down the rabbit hole, as, as I guess we do as historians. 
So you talk about uh, this at the end, but I think it might be a useful way to frame it. We're much more familiar with the discourses about public health uh, and the state in the context of the revolution, right? Because the revolution sort of holds it up as one of its main achievements. Um, But why is it important to talk about health in the pre-revolutionary period? Well, one of the things that I found was that, you know, that idea that we see throughout, especially 1970s, 1980s and beyond Cuba, and certainly since the the 1990s special period, um, where you see the increasing exportation of Cuban physicians um, to the rest of the world, um, you know, this idea that that there's something um, that that healthcare is a fundamental right of of Cuban citizenship, um, that the, the one of the the ways in which the Cuban revolutionary government has kind of proven its legitimacy as a government that takes care of its own people um, has been through providing um, really excellent world-class healthcare with all the problems that it has um, for being, you know, among the poorest countries. Um, and that, that, that people have been struck around the world by the, the seeming incongruence of having a relatively rather poor country that, that nevertheless takes care of its citizens, um, provides quality health care, and not only provides health care for its own citizens, but trains doctors from around the world and even exports uh, physicians elsewhere to deal with health problems um, everywhere from Brazil to Sub-Saharan Africa, across Latin America, Venezuela, etc. Um, people have been struck by that story for a long time. And, and I, you know, up until really starting this project, like had also assumed that, um, that this, this linking of, of, of citizen rights um, to the political project of the revolution um, was something that really emerged just out of the revolution and not realizing, as I came to realize in writing the book, um, that, 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 that idea, set of ideas that, that ties the legitimacy of government, of governance itself to providing adequate um, health services or opportunities for health for its citizens is something that, that emerges precisely at this moment of independence um, with this generation of, of what I call Cuban medical nationalists that themselves came of age in the final decades of the 19th century, were intimately involved in the, in the revolutionary independence struggle itself, um, and then in exile had um, experience working in, in these cutting edge medical institutions and clinics across Europe and North America um, once they were forced into exile. Um, and you, you, you see like this, the longstanding uh, political discourse in Cuba from this moment in the late 19th, early 20th century um, that what gets re-invoked um, in the context of the Cuban revolution. And you see some of the same figures involved, people that are involved in sort of the radical medical politics of the 1930s um, are, are among the, the leaders of the new medical institutions after 1959, although as we know, um, a large percentage of Cuban physicians left uh, Cuba in 1959-1960, along with the whole exodus of, of Cuban elites. Um, but still, this idea that, um, that that the state has a fundamental responsibility, the Cuban government has a resp- fundamental responsibility um, to care for the health of its citizens, is something that just gets reinvoked in in new ways and new forms. Um, but it's rooted in many ways in this late 19th, early 20th century period that I study. The book opens with the reconcentration, and you offer some really vivid and kind of harrowing scenes of the hardship and the suffering incurred. And one of the things about the book that, um, you know, leads me to say that everybody should actually read it instead of in addition to listening to us um, is that the, you know, the, the writing is, is, is quite vivid and the stories that you tell are, are just fantastic. So we're going to get to some more of those later. But this, this opening with the reconcentration, and in some ways that sets up the initial relationship with Cuba, not just with the United States, but also with Spain and that kind of triangular um, relationship that, that remains important throughout the book. So why, why did you decide to start there? Yeah, I mean, so... It's it's if you're thinking about the ways in which um, medicine and politics sort of become intertwined at that at that moment and in turn of the century Cuba like really it's a it's a combination of the sort of that brutal denouement of of Spanish colonial rule with the reconcentración where like close to ten percent of the Cuban population died um, between 1896 1897 um, and 1898 um, where where you know in order to keep um, resources from being funneled towards the the, the Cuban guerrillas, the the independence forces um, in the countryside. The the, the Spanish um, 
military removed peasants from the countryside and sort of forcibly relocated them into the cities in Western Cuba, you know, often without uh, proper sanitation, pro without proper housing, um, and with like really intermittent access to food. Um, so what happened was that these people began dying in droves and in, in very public ways. Um, so there were literally images of these children that are dying on the streets of, of Matanzas and Havana. Um, newspaper reporters from the United States that are, of course, like, you know, eagerly uh, going down to Havana to to report on, on the horrors of the War of Independence um, are, are sort of face to face with these mothers and starving children that are on the streets of Havana. So there's this intense amount of death, um, and it's a very public death, and it becomes very politicized death, um, certainly for the United States, which then uses that as a as an argument for for intervention. You know, even before the um, the main sort of seals the deal, the explosion of the main, um, there are there's a great push for for uh, first humanitarian intervention, um, and then later military intervention in Cuba um, in order to ostensibly in order to to help the the concentrados. Um, these these women and children um, and old folks primarily that are that are out there dying on the streets. Um, so so you have this mass amount of death that's that's everywhere um, and that's that's firmly sort of laid on the at the hands of, of of the Spanish military and it becomes a you know a metaphor for for the failure of Spain to care for Cubans. The the how it becomes like a sign um, of of the failure of the Spanish colonial project altogether. Um, so on the one hand, and, and so of course, it, it becomes a, a sign of the failure of, of governance of the government um, to care for people on the margins that um, that were dying unnecessary deaths, um, and so that becomes a, a great argument for um, that that when the, these physicians that had been in exile um, by 1897, 1898, a lot of them were in exile, they come back to Havana um, in the midst of all these people that are still on the streets dying and starving. Um, and, you know, with the U.S. occupation government providing a different kind of rationale um, for, for caring for these people and for, for instituting health reforms, um, you see this, like you say, this triangulation of forces between Cuban nationalism um, of these physicians that are coming back in, wanting to help find ways to help their, 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 their fellow citizens. Um, you have this rejection of, of Spanish colonial power that uh, at this point has become identified with with suffering and death and disease. And then you have the U.S. Um, occupation government, which is a very complex, uh, has, has its own complex trajectory here, um, providing on the one hand a context and a new set of institutions for Cuban physicians to sort of exert their new influence um, and help make the, the capital of Havana a healthier place. Um, and on the other hand, um, have their own rationale for why they're trying to institute these health reforms, mostly really to deal with the yellow fever problem, which in the end didn't affect Cubans, except economically, because uh, people that were born where yellow fever is endemic gain a childhood immunity to the disease, and the disease really only affects um, people that were foreign born. Um, so, so these, the, and then of course the United States with the Platt Amendment comes to exert its own uh, sort of for colonial medical projects on 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 the island um, tries to impose its own colonial medical project. So Cuban physicians are on the one hand like sort of caught in between um, like this medical nationalist desire to like improve the health conditions of the Cuban poor and the Cuban people themselves, um, and of course they're they're also trying to respond to um, at the same time use um, the the sort of health prerogatives of, of the U.S. military, um, the U.S. occupation government um, to further their own um, essentially nationalist health agenda. Um, so you have this really interesting set of dynamics that happens here. Um, so I, I started with the Reconcentración partly to highlight the, like, those three parts, um, the, the denomination of Spanish rule, the emergence of a new medical nationalist project, and the complex uh, ways in which the United States is inserting themselves um, with, with the, the occupation of the island, um, and then afterwards. But also, like, it's part of a through line that I'm interested in the book, where I really want to, like, not just talk about doctors and nurses and the ways in which they have these great ideas sometimes and sometimes horrible ideas for how to transform the health conditions on the island. Um, but it also, I'm, I'm just as much interested in, in looking at this process to the degree that you can in the context of the sources that we have um, from the lens of, of the popular classes of, of poor folks, just folks trying to make ends meet um, and under conditions of, of uh, gendered and racialized and economic inequality um, in Havana from, from the 1890s through the 1930s where my book ends. So in particular, this idea of looking at 
um, ordinary people. The, another through line that uh, works throughout the book is this idea of gender, right? And the gendering of poverty um, is really a, a, a kind of powerful argument that you make and demonstrate. Um, so the early scenes in the post-war, but then you also look very carefully at infant mortality and the debates about breastfeeding later. So can you just talk about how that and the sort of gender and the role that it came to have in the eventual place of public health and, and the public imaginary really in Cuba? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I am interested in the ways in which poverty manifests itself in early Republican Cuba. Um, and, you know, and, and certainly the, the, there, there are a few ways in which like poverty and disease get on the radar most clearly um, for, for Cuban doctors and nurses during this period um, and, and become really evident in the Cuban health statistics themselves. Um, and infant morta- mortality is a key point here. Um, so, you know, we know like then as, and as well as now that, um, you know, infant mortality just has tuberculosis. These are, um, you know, health problems that emerge out of poverty first and foremost, um, that become reflections that really are reflections of a whole ser- broader series of things and become a way of like a lens onto conditions on the ground. Um, you know, with, with, with infant mortality, it's, it's a question of, um, you know, of women's poverty, particularly like as, as women have to go and work outside of the home um, when they have young nursing newborns and young children. So the women have to, when they have to go out and work, they have to leave their children with someone. Uh, in early 20th century Cuba, there were a very few, they only really began emerging around 1912, 1914. Um, these, these creches or these new sort of daycare centers where, where working class women can actually leave their children. Um, but there are very, very few institutions like this. So in reality, most women are forced to leave their babies with whoever will care for them, often family members or neighbors um, that aren't able to nurse them and, and they're forced to feed them whatever they have on hand. Um, in the era before refrigeration, um, obviously, like there's a lot of potential for foodborne bacteria to grow, especially in the summertime. And precisely what you begin seeing in the in the um, public health records and the mortality reports and the morbidity reports um, are is a skyrocketing of 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 um, child of infant gastrointestinal ailments in the in in the summer months. This was a really dangerous period for for Cuban babies. Um, and they begin dying in droves. It's one of the number one causes of death um, in, in Havana during this period, or gastrointestinal ailments for children. And women become implicated in this, like both as, you know, it's a lens onto living conditions, the ways in which like women had to navigate uh, motherhood and, and labor, and, and, you know, and, 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 and poor housing. Um, of course, the women's labor was really poorly paid during this period is something you, you really begin seeing. Um, you know, there weren't that many jobs that were open to women. Um, elite women certainly didn't work for the most part. Um, and it was, it was poor women and poor women often worked, um, you know, if you were lucky, you had a job in a tobacco factory. Um, but most women worked um, as, you know, in, in doing cleaning and cooking often in other people's homes and had to leave their children behind. Um, and so, so what, what happens, of course, is these public health campaigns that begin identifying infant mortality as a major problem and sort of an embarrassment for early 20th century Cuba that had done such a good job dealing with the eradicating yellow fever in the early decades of the 20th century. Um, all of a sudden, like our, you know, it's as, as infant mortality becomes sort of a global signifier for what later becomes termed underdevelopment, you know, it becomes like an embarrassment so that we have all these Cuban children that are dying. Um, it seems to be proof that the Cuban government is unable to keep its children safe. Um, there are these new infant, anti-infant mortality campaigns that emerge. Um, and often, the, like you have these doctors, nurses, public health officials, new um, scientific reports that are firmly laying the blame on the quote-unquote backwards habits of, of, of Cuban women. Um, so women are, are blamed left and right for the death of their children, um, for not uh, take, either taking enough care in the, in the proper care of their children, um, or being, you know, having, you know, listening to older women on the street as opposed to the council, the wise council of, of Cuban doctors and nurses. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which, which Cuban women are being blamed for this. And only over time, particularly like, you know, in the context of there's a handful of Cuban doctors that are attentive to sort of the, the, the sort of material contexts here that recognize that it's poverty and, and sort of the structural aspects of the economy that are out of the hands of individual women that are really at the root cause of this. 
Um, but it's only over time, really, that that idea begins gaining more purchase, as, 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 especially as, as Cuban nurses that are visiting these families often with these new public health programs. There's all these visiting nurse programs that where um, nurses are entering the house of, of poorer families and trying to teach them how to properly care for children, um, what to do when the children are sick, how to, how to care for family members with tuberculosis, etc. It's these nurses that, that begin... Um, increasingly like writing and talking about how like the sort of structural limits um, of this idea that if we just if we just through proper education itself um, tell people what to do then all of a sudden like the public health problems will will be eliminated um, they people increasingly come to recognize that it's not a matter of the right information um, in and of itself it's a matter of, of having public health education combined with sort of structural reforms um, that would alleviate poverty, um, improve um, access to things like childcare or, you know, like hospitals for, for poor folks, et cetera. Like it was more medical services as uh, uh, anti-poverty measures and um, health education together would actually fundamentally work to, to improve the health conditions on the ground. Um, but yeah, but women are being blamed um, certainly for, for, for the problems of, the, of, of, of infant mortality. Um, Interestingly, like, you know, gender comes into it in all sorts of ways, like the first generation of, of Cuban nurses um, that, that graduate from these new medical schools um, that get created during the U.S. occupation. Um, you know, so women are getting it from, from all sides, as of course they do. Um, the, these new nurses are being decried as, uh, as being sort of like a foreign idea that's being imposed upon Cuba. Um, the church is actually actively campaigning against the, the profession of nursing. At the beginning of the 20th century, um, and so like, there's all sorts of ways in which, like you know, medicine itself, as a sort of gendered set of ideas, seems to preclude women um, from practicing um, medicine at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and then you know, over the over, during that decade and afterwards, women are also blamed for um, for for being ignorant of public health, of the proper public health uh, precautions to take to take care of their families. Um, you know, and so you see sort of gender um, being at the heart of this. Yeah. And paradoxically, they're also expected to know how to take care of their families. And they're the ones who are pointing out the problems in the sort of social, social injustice issues that are kind of perpetuating these diseases, right? So it's a Absolutely. really, it's a really fascinating story. And one of the things that's so interesting about this book is the way that, um, you know, you shift away from yellow fever, the story of which is, is important, as we know, but it's been told, and you start to incorporate these other diseases, tuberculosis and the plague, and I want to talk about the plague in a minute, but that just, um, as you say, it really opens up the story to new actors and to new relationships between those actors and the state and to new ways to map the city and to map the country more, more, um, more extensively as well, right? Yeah, no, that's one thing that I really enjoyed, honestly, about about researching and writing this um, was when you sort of like step away from the, I mean, the, there's the stories that tend to get told about Republican Cuba, um, and there's plenty of stories, you know, around, you know, U.S. empire, which of course, my, you know, I also write about U.S. empire, I'm very interested in it, um, or, you know, um, the corruption, political corruption in politics, etc., which I also talk about. Um, but, you know, when you sort of step away from sort of the, the more well-trod themes, you realize that there's that these different kinds of sources allow you to like see aspects of daily life in Havana that seemed hidden from, from other bodies of historiography maybe. Um, but there's, there's, I mean, it, it's, it, I, I love thinking about what everyday life was like in early 20th century Cuba and the ways in which like people navigated um, just trying to keep themselves and their families safe and healthy um, in the context of diseases where they had no cure for, um, you know, this was the decade before there was any effective treatment for uh, tuberculosis, when the you know bubonic plague was killing folks, when people were dying of infant mortality, and the best uh, often that that physicians could do um, was um, you know public health education in, in this period, um, you know, and so you, you is trying, so what were the implications of that for for people living their lives in in the decades before um, effective um, antibiotics really sort of began transforming the medical landscape in a different kind of way um, is what I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, I love daily life in Havana in this period. Well, I mean, and in some ways, and I know you didn't intend this, but the resonances with 
the stuff that we've been doing all year long are really kind of powerful, right? You talk about quarantining, um, you talk about um, sort of regimes of hygiene, um, you talk about, and we haven't had to be, be dealing with rats, but the, the stories about the plague and the rat denunciations um, and the, the Office of Rat Extermination, which was one of my favorite things. Um, um, the, those, those are fantastic stories. And I guess this, is, this might be a good, a good moment to talk about all of these actors that you include that, again, we hadn't heard about before. The activists, the journalists of color who are really attentive to issues of racial inequality, um, et cetera. And um, I was curious about the sources that you drew from. It seemed like you you kind of cast a net really widely and and found some some really fantastic things. Yeah, it's sort of the the, the having to cast the wide net or getting to cast the wide net. I don't know how to put it. Um, is interestingly in part uh, the result of uh, someone or a series of people that that blew up the the archives of the um, that burned down the archives of the Ministry of Public Health um, in 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 the months leading up to the ouster of the dictator Machado. So there was a couple of, of bombings that happened in the period where there were lots of bombings, um, and often it was um, government um, ministries, uh, government offices that were targeted, um, being as um, you know, there's a period of, of incredible political corruption under the dictatorship of Machado from the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and, you know, the Ministry of Health was seen as as one of the many hotbeds of, of graft and low-level corruption. And um, it was targeted with a firebomb. And, um, you know, the fire found ample fuel in all the pieces of paper um, that were held there. Um, and so, you know, when I got to the archives with this great idea for a project on, on, on public health and no one seemed to know what happened to the, to the, to the Ministry of Health's archive until I realized looking through newspaper articles that it had burned down. Um, you know, I was, I was at that point forced to really open the lens as broadly as I could. Um, one benefit of that is that like, you know, the Ministry of Health, I think probably as an institution would have played a much greater role in, a, in an alternate universe version of the book. Um, but that, that forced me to think, well, okay, well, what other sources do we have for identifying the ways in which um, people are experiencing disease and health, um, new medical institutions, new ideas, and the ways that that's being politicized in the, in the early decades of the 20th century. And so you see that there's all sorts of stuff that, that's available. Um, you know, Cuba had this phenomenal medical press at the time. Um, Havana at the turn of the 20th century actually had uh, more doctors per capita than any other city in the world, um, which is crazy to think about. Um, but one of the things that happened, therefore, was all, all these this proliferation of medical journals. And there were literally dozens of medical journals, um, some short-lived, some much longer-lived, um, that, were, that were circulating in early 20th century Cuba. And they tell you all sorts of things. So like Manuel Delfin, who was this uh, really interesting, complicated guy who... Um, who was this uh, writer, activist, um, you know, organized a couple of charities over the course of his life and, and edited um, and produced mostly by himself this, this medical journal called La Higiene or Hygiene that was oriented towards like a popular, um, you know, popular class or middle class literate audience. Um, and it was really oriented towards like trying to you know, let people know about like, you know, what the new ideas are about public health and hygiene, how they can take care of themselves and their and their families. But it, it provides you, provides a really interesting lens for like how hygiene and health are, are, are shaping everyday life. Like, you know, stuff about like, you know, should the churches be sanitizing the holy water? Um, you know, like thinking about like, um, you know, just like how should we be greeting each other? Should we be kissing each other on the cheek or should we no longer as Cubans be kissing each other on the cheek and greeting? Um, all these, all these ways in which like, you know, you see the, the, like the ways in which health and hygiene are, are sort of being incorporated in all sorts of ways into everyday life, you see through some of these medical journals. Of course, they also, you see these, a lot of research that's being done on diseases in, in the city and in the country as a whole, but particularly in the city. And those, um, those studies, all that research provides a lens. Sometimes there's interviews with folks or like you, you hear the voices of, of, of poor folks that are um, being talked to um, by the by the researchers and writers. Um, sometimes you, you you just get a lot of information from the statistics that you see on the ground. Um, that really like you see when you see like by um, like who's getting tuberculosis and, and and break that down by race and gender. 
um, and occupation, you, you see uh, that, that provides you a whole set of lenses onto what living conditions were like um, for, for folks of color, particularly um, in, in early 20th century Cuba. Um, so yeah, I mean, this was this really interesting period where there were, there are so many studies that that, that emerged during this period. Um, you got you have of course the newspapers beyond like the medical journals um, themselves. Um, you have um, the and, and the personal papers of Cuban doctors and nurses. You've got um, you know um, you know the, obviously like the random things that you find in the Cuban archives. But since you have this such tight relationship between um, health conditions in Cuba and and the United States. Um, because of the the effects of the Platt Amendment, um, you you see studies emerging from the United States of Cuban health conditions, um, and all sorts of sources that wind up in archives from um, you know the, the the New York Public Library Museum, um, you know the the New York Historical Society, University of Virginia, um, Historical Society of Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's all sorts of material that's out there. Um, and photographs, etc. So, if you're interested in like the ways in which housing or intersect with uh, with, with with tuberculosis, because tuberculosis is really a lens onto onto poverty and particularly housing conditions, um, that like sort of tells a whole different kind of story and um, opens up a whole new set of sources when you think about like you know, well, how how did people live? Like, what were the conditions in which the poor lived, um, and why did they live? Where they lived and the conditions in which they lived. Um, so you learn all about the solar and all the, the which was a sort of Cuban tenement at the time. Will they still exist? Um, and there was all sorts of consternation about the the social and medical implications of of the solar um, as these sort of like you know understood to be black spaces, um, and and were were seen by elites as sort of a blot on on the not just the health conditions but also the society of Havana. Um, and so because there was so much consternation, it means there's a lot of writing about them in newspapers and journals. Um, as well as in the archive. Um, so, so if you, interestingly, I was forced to like really look very widely um, for sources, but that wound up really helping me think um, and really reconstruct more of, a, of an everyday life in, in Havana during this period. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. But, but actually also, and I was just thinking about this as you were talking, it also allows you to make the argument, which you do, and you do really nicely, that this was kind of part of the public discourse and everybody was interested in arguing about, you know, whether you should kiss people on the cheek and they had opinions about it and, you know, for, for better or worse, right? The idea that the Spanish immigrants are bringing in the plague and that that becomes a kind of racialized issue like the 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 idea that it's in the air and that at least people who are literate are talking about this stuff all the time um, becomes part of your story mm -hmm, absolutely yeah and you know and, and, and like you, with, with the with the you know the conflict with spaniards um is, a, is another sort of way through which you know when you're attentive to questions of, of public health and power and politics and empire in, in early 20th century Cuba, um, particularly in Havana, like the, the Spanish sort of emerge as these like really central figures um, in, in ways that that um, that you can trace over time. You know, like the 1914 Bubonic Plague outbreak, um, which you're alluding to with this office of, of, uh, of rat extermination, um, et cetera, like becomes a really interesting thing that I had never heard about um, that, you know, 
there was this 1914 bubonic plague outbreak lasted a few months um, but um, everyone that was getting sick initially um, and throughout most of it really they were these Spanish immigrant workers um, because the the plague was coming in from um, as according to Cuban public health officials the plague was coming in from the Canary Islands um, and so what you see is like you know and, and so there's emerging conflict between um, Spanish merchant power so that the Spaniards that were really controlling um, these import export warehouses along the docks in Old Havana um, where all of the workers they tended to hire among themselves um, the, the so like you know the, the, the uh, if it was a, an owner from Galicia they would hire Gallego workers um, and you had you know these tight-knit um, immigrant Spanish communities that were formed um, in, in within these warehouses and within these networks um, you know, and it, and they had their own hospital systems. They have their own like mutual aid um, centers, like the Centro Gallego or Centro Asturiano, that were were these immigrant groups like organized, eventually um, making their own health um, institutions that they were able to like you know get health benefits for for a fairly low price. Um, you know, so you have like this whole world that 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 it comes into view of like Spanish. Um, for Spanish merchant power on top, but like, you know, this robust world of, of, of Spanish immigrant workers um, that all of a sudden, like the Spanish Spanish power becomes once again, as we saw with, you know, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, like if Spanish power was associated with disease and death and, uh, you know, sort of uh, the infringements upon Cuban sovereignty, once again in 1914, that happens again, um, where this bubonic plague outbreak um, sort of becomes a flashpoint for, for uh, nationalist ideas around like this, the idea of this, the Spanish health threat to Cuban independence, because of course, like, you know, um, the because of the Platt Amendment, um, the Cuban public health officials are forced to like deal with the, the plague outbreak as quickly as they can, because ostensibly, according to the, well, legally, according to the Platt Amendment, the United States had the right to intervene militarily in Cuba if, uh, if Cuba was not able to like keep urban public health conditions to sort of internationally acceptable standards. And so if it became a center where, where um, bubonic plague was endemic, obviously that threatened Cuban sovereignty in real ways. So here again, you had the, the Spaniards that were coming in, exerting their economic power and threatening Cuban sovereignty. Um, it becomes this other, this new flashpoint where, where the, the Spaniards seem to be from the perspective of Cuban medical nationalists, um, the villains of the story. Um, you know, but it, it's complex. But then you also see that, like, you know, there were at one point among all these different Spanish immigrant groups, um, you see how inter how how central they were to the to the urban economy and urban life more broadly. I mean, hundred there were I think by 1934, um, this 1934 I believe report um, at their height there were like 175, 176 thousand members, mostly in Havana of these. Um, Spanish mutual aid societies. So they, they had a, this really broad network. I think about a quarter of the population at times um, of, of the city were, were Spanish immigrants themselves. Um, and so there's another, another part of daily life in, in Havana that's not usually talked about is, is like how central Spanish immigrants were in, in the early decades of the 20th century and what sort of disproportionate economic clout that they had. Um, and yet they become a target um, for not, for, you know, not for nothing, they become a target um, of public health officials um, because they were actually hiding bubonic plague um, cases amongst their workers. Um, and that did become a, a potential threat to, to Cuban health and to Cuban sovereignty. But it just also reminds you that the Cuban uh, story is always a transnational one, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes in a couple of different directions. Um, the book ends with a really kind of dramatic account of uh, strikes and mobilizations by Cuban physicians. Can you sort of walk us through that? What happened and wh why? What what drove them to political activism? Yeah. So so there there's um, the the last chapter deals with the the nineteen thirty four medical strike um, and the the ways in which. So yeah, I get. So if you if the the book, you know. Um, deals with how how different groups within the city particularly um are are sort of subject to and then actors in these broader medical um, political debates of the period and the last one turns to the last chapter turns to doctors themselves and physicians as physicians and physicians as workers um which is something that that doctors at the time um were sometimes um I guess, like, you know, they were a little, like, their status as workers was, uh, was, was itself, like, a fraught issue. 
Um, certainly doctors, like in, in the United States, you see that doctors really held on to um, this idea that the, of, of, of like pr the independent private practice, that they were you know, their own bosses um, and they would have their own small private practices. The, the medical economy of, of Havana like, did not really allow for um, the proliferation of small medical private practices. And partly that has to do with what we're talking about with, with, with the growth of Spanish commercial power um, and the rise of the, this, this huge number of Spanish immigrants with their own, um, because of the, their own like local centers that had their own medical care and often their own, increasingly their own hospitals, um, up to uh, I think 40% of the, of, the, of the population of Havana um, by the 1930s actually had access uh, to to medical care under the Centro Gallego or Centro Asturiano, one of these other Spanish immigrant um, uh, hospitals and uh, clinic systems. Um, you know, interestingly, in the United States, actually, there's some reporting that happens in the, in the 1930s that sees um, this mutual aid hospital system in Cuba as being a potential model for how to how to organize medical care and make it affordable for working class folks in the United States. So in the, in the U.S., some folks are seeing this as a model. In, Cu in Cuba, Cuban physicians are up in arms against the, the, the Spanish immigrant mutual aid system, um, which they see as like the major economic threat to their survival. Um, and that's, that's because, you know, if 40% of the population can, of, of Havana is able to get medical services through um, these low-cost um, low cost, uh, clinics, um, that it has to be said, did not pay a, a high wage for the doctors. Um, then, then doctors either had to like accept low wages under these or try to, you know, eke out a living, um, for the, what wind up being, if 40% if was under, um, the Spanish mutual aid systems, it was close to 40% of the population that because of their poverty, um, had access to the city's, you know, problematic and not great, but still there, um, public clinics and hospitals, um, you know, where the poor had eligibility for, um, that means like less than a quarter of the, of the, of the population of the city, um, was, what was the population that actually purchased medical services on an open market. So you had all of these doctors. And I think, uh, by 1930, there were about 1200 physicians that were competing, um, for less than a quarter of the population. Um, and it was just an unsustainable economic situation for Cuban doctors. So this is part of the part of the context is like the ways in which like uh, because of the urban economy, um, because of the large number, large percentage of, of Cubans that are poor um, and the large percentage of Cubans, uh, like the working class that had access to services, weren't paying for services on the open market. Um, that meant that, um, you know, Cuban doctors were increasingly squeezed economically. So because like on the one hand, they're getting squeezed economically. And on the other hand, um, this is the period of the of the of the Machado dictatorship, um, you know, 1925 to 1933. Um, and this is the period when the, the Cuban Medical Federation gets formed um, and they get formed specifically um, as a as in order to organize against um, Spanish commercial um, power over the urban um, and national medical marketplace. Like they really organize to try to push um, the Centro Gallego and Centro Asturiano um, to, for example, not allow middle class or wealthy uh, members of their institutions to get medical services um, for, for next to nothing as, 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 as ba their basic dues um, as, 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 a, as a result of their membership in these institutions. Um, and so like, you know, so it becomes quickly like politicized as a, you know, in the context of Spanish power. Um, you know, increasingly, however, this is also the period of the 1920s when, when you know, you have this mass movements that are emerging, um, the rise of radical student groups, the rise of the, the Cuban um, Labor Federation gains new power during this period. Um, you know, it's, it's a period of union activism and, and nationalist politics, and, and increasingly it's organized against in opposition to, um, to, to U.S. empire and to um, the power of Machado. So you have like this flourishing medical left that emerges as a part of that, um, partly like, you know, because of their like, you know, anti-Machado politics, um, but also like they begin embracing it, this idea of the, that, 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 that Cuban physicians are workers and that as workers, they have an identity um, in common with the mass of Cuban workers that are that are that are also suffering under the economy and under the dictatorship. So you have this growing like, you know, sector within the Cuban uh, Medical Federation that embraces left wing um, politics and, and embraces the idea that the that the solution to both the economic problems 
um, of Cuban doctors and to the to the health problems of the Cuban poor would be like a, the radical transformation of the entire Cuban medical system um, with a, a state-run medical system that would um, that would guarantee health for everybody um, that would extend healthcare services into the countryside where where healthcare services were uh, barely existed at the time. And that would actually be able to like fully employ all Cuban doctors. So it would, actually, there was a good economic argument for the the transformation of the Cuban medical system um, and the nationalization, essentially, in state like a, having a new mostly state-run medical system, um, made a lot of sense to even you know center middle of the road Cuban doctors increasingly. So then, by by after this medical strike that happens in 1934, you have this like you know. Um, this growing number of, of, you know, including old, rich Cuban doctors that are embracing this idea that they're increasingly um, like look, in, looking in favor of this idea of having um, a st- like rapid state expansion of the of the public medical sector as a as a way of dealing with like both the health problems of the Cuban poor um, and the the employment problems of, of Cuban doctors, and that's something that doesn't happen really anywhere else in the world in the same way, and it's really partly because of like the the, the strange power of these um, of these uh, Spanish um, institutions, as well as sort of the conjuncture um, that that inserts like that creates this context for um, you know a, a really robust medical left to emerge um, in in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so, so you have Cuban doctors that are that are openly pushing for the kinds of policies that were absolutely anathema to to the American Medi- Medical Federation at the same time. The idea that you would have um, a mass expansion of state medicine um, and a reduction of, um, of of independent, you know, practitioner-run uh, medical clinics. Um, so it's 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 so that that way you see um, doctors wind up like linking up with precisely the 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 act like the um, black journalists. Um, and, and feminists that have been arguing for the expansion of, of public uh, medical services at the same time. Um, and you, so there's this uh, potential for this alliance that emerges, and it does emerge, um, this alliance between the union movement, um, Cuban physicians, particularly the left wing, um, you know, black activists and feminists, um, all working together towards this idea that we should have um, a rapid expansion, a vast expansion of, of public medical services. Um, and that is, I think, a pretty cool story um, that this idea that all those groups would come together, see their interests as aligned um, and all push for health as, as, a, as a fundamental right for all Cubans, not just for those um, that could afford medical services on the open market. Um, and in the end, that's where the book ends is the 1940 Cuban Constitution, um, which does as one of the four or five fundamental rights um, that all, to all Cuban citizens is the right to receive um, medical care, um, you know, um, and, and of course we know that the post 1940 Cuba did not go as planned, um, and and a lot of these, uh, a lot of the promise of the 1940 Constitution wasn't really ever fulfilled in practice. Um, but you see that that idea that 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 all Cubans have a fundamental right that's enshrined in the 1940 Cuban Constitution itself, of course, become. Um, part of the political discourse um, that leads to the to the to the 1959 revolution, um, and that you begin seeing that right finally fulfilled um, in its in its particular ways um, under the context of the the post 1959 Cuban revolutionary government. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, and I want to, um, I'm taking up a lot of your time, so maybe one last question: this idea of the ambivalent legacies of the Constitution interested me because that you know I found the same thing when I wrote about race um, and the the sort of the coming together and the and the mobilization and the kind of idealism of the 1940 Constitution and then the kind of disappointment afterwards, but then the continuing on as the taking up again um, during the the 59 revolution and how much that was rooted in the promises of 1940. Yeah, I mean, in in ways that like you know, even even the the opponents of the of the Cuban revolutionary government, um, everyone agreed that the 1940 Constitution was this sort of like high point, um, this moment of like hopefulness, and and a, a, a roadmap um, for for what a return to Cuban democracy would look like, you know, after the dictatorship of Batista. Um, and so, of course, Fidel Castro held up the 1940 Constitution, and, and those that were opposed to Fidel Castro held up the 1940 Constitution um, as this, as this, you know, as as a solid social democratic constitution um, that that you know that provided like a, a robust vision of you know state support um, 
and and expansion of of social rights um, in ways that that I think still holds a lot of like you know it, it's still it's still talked about um, as a as 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 this high point of of 20th century Cuban politics for some. Um, yeah, I mean, so, but of course, like it's it's this legacy, as as you noted, is ambivalent in in that it was never like really like these provisions were never fully implemented, um, and you know, yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a, it's a, it's a it, it, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to be like you know, there's those of course that say that like you know the the post nineteen fifty nine government was a better than fulfillment of the promise of nineteen forty, and of course those that that have a different vision of the post-1959 government, but certainly like the, the idea that it had held enormous sway and continues to exert influence over political discourses is definitely true. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, it, it seems, a, I don't know, I, I like the idea of kind of ending there and and leaving it hanging a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, because um, like, I mean, part of it is that I didn't want to tell a story, like, so so when I, when I first got to Cuba, um, for my first research trip, um, you know, I had uh, someone that was processing my my um, research visa say, Daniel, we're so glad that you're t- writing the story because, like, you know, we want you know we want you to write a story that that tells about how, how awful things were before the Cuban Revolution. And at the same time, I had my cousins in Florida that were like, Daniel, we're so glad that you're going to finally tell the truth about how how better things were before the Cuban Revolution. I was like, look, you know, <laughs> I, neither of those is, is especially appealing to me. I actually want to tell a story of like how people like, you know, encounter daily life, like, you know, pick up new ideas and, and try to like push for, for new kinds of policies. Uh, but I'm not interested in telling a story like really that, that, that where this is just about the Cuban revolution. This is not a prelude to the revolution sort of story, but one where, where people are experiencing the reality of illness and death and, and new ideas about like, you know, what rights we might have as people and whether we have a right to health. Um, and, and seeing how they navigate that under conditions of inequality and, you know, um, you know, political instability and empire. Um, and I think that is a story that that is, for me, more interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Well, th- thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.